It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. This is episode 33 uh, in our series entitled Spiritual Lessons from World War I. I have to admit that I am uh, somewhat excited about this one. I get to return to sort of the uh, code breaker, secret agent uh, side of things uh, with this, and we get to do a return sort of to the Wild West, uh, which is the American involvement. America at the point of the war that we're at, which is late 1916, is still trying to come up with every excuse it possibly can to not get involved in this war. And so I'll give you a little background about that. And the Germans are doing everything they can to make sure that America does not get involved in this war. And that's part of the intrigue and the fun of uh, studying uh, World War I is to enjoy the uh, interrelationships of the nations and the spy networks that are laboring uh, over time. The Germans, if you remember any of the previous messages I've given, uh, which there's three, uh, on the German conspiracy, if you will, to distract America, which is very fascinating in the Christian life to recognize that it's the same conspiracy that the enemy has hatched in our life, and that's to distract us from the true battle we're supposed to be fighting. And so we've called that the border battles with Mexico. Uh, America is totally tied up in battles with Mexico. And which sounds so strange to most of us in here is like, we're doing what? And yet that's exactly what, you know, we could look at each of our lives here. It's like, so we have a great commission. We've been assigned a task. All right, how are we doing in getting that job done? Well, you see, I have a lot of distractions in my life. I got some border battles with Mexico going on. And as a result, we are not, we esteem the commission, but we don't actually know how to fulfill it practically. Agent H. You guys, don't you like that? Uh, that? That is like so intriguing. It's a real character in history, and technically, we do not know who this was. We know it was a man, but all we know about them is that they were known in the uh, secret spy network of Great Britain as H. That's all. That's what they were known as, is H. And they died uh, even in that uh, mystery. Isn't that intriguing? Uh, so we have Agent H. I almost changed at the last minute to Special Agent H, but you know, I decided to keep it simple. Uh, Agent H. So previously on Daily Thunder. So we've had three episodes that have sort of begun to lay a foundation. You see, I'm dealing with two things at once. I'm dealing with the European conflict, and I'm dealing with the relationships that are, are critical, and especially Russia, France, uh, Great Britain, and their engagement with Germany, even though Germany is not the only uh, power that they are fighting, Germany is the big dog. Austria-Hungary is falling to pieces, Turkey is hardly, you know, uh, wheezing its last. And so even though uh, Germany has other powers that are supposedly helping it, Germany spends more time helping those other powers than they help Germany. Germany is a very, very powerful country com coming into World War I. And it's interesting because even though they're going to be debilitated by World War I, at the start of World War II, they are once again extremely impressive. And this is, this is a country that knows how to get its game on. 
However, the other countries that are uh, in this grand feud uh, with uh, Germany uh, are at this, this point where they are desperate to get the United States in because they can't seem to break the stalemate. And both sides are looking for something that will break through this trench line battle, which is just gobbling up lives. Neither side can surrender because then uh, that means the other side has taken, like if, if the allies surrender, they have given up a good portion of Europe and that now the Germans will just be all the more strong. And they're a warlike people. They're, all, they're sort of militaristic is the description of the, of the Germans in this period of time. And they have, what did Napoleon say? Prussians were birthed from a cannonball. Uh, that, that's like Napoleon's, of course, it's like, it's like the pot calling the kettle black. Uh, it's like, Napoleon, now what were you birthed from? Uh, and yet, at the same time, it's, it's an interesting statement because you do see that. They are they're very smart uh, people, the, the Germans. They're very inventive. They seem to be the best in music. They seem to best be the best in the arts. They seem to have all these qualities that they call kultur, like culture. And they feel that everyone should be like them. They are the superior race. It's interesting because going into World War I, they had this mentality of being the superior race. They just had different verbiage. By the time you get to World War II, you're going to actually see the full impact of evolutionary thought upon the German mindset. They are a Christian nation that has sort of forsaken their Christianity, and they, are, they truly believe in the survival of the fittest. That is their entire mentality. And so if you're not the fittest, you're going down. And the fittest are going to take over the world. And as shocking as that is to our mindset, it is interesting that we still live in a world that values and prospers the notions of evolution. And so when you, when you realize the dangers of certain mentalities and how they truly sponsor, like darkness surfs upon the waves of them, it's very interesting. So we went back and the first message was the meddling of William, then we had the 21-gun salute and the rise of Pancho, Pancho Villa, a very fascinating character that is going to be a pain in the neck for the uh, Americans. And so the Americans are gonna send their army over the Mexican border to try and hunt Pancho Villa down, and they cannot find him. And so it's humiliating to the American government. There's one guy, we cannot seem to stop him. And guess who is sponsoring him? The Germans. And so, I mean, we have a little Pancho Villas in our life, too, that scamper around, and we, like, spend so much of our life and our energy trying to stamp out Pancho Villa. Meanwhile, there's a great conflict uh, that the world is, you know, convulsing under that if we were able to focus on this true battle that we are assigned, this whole thing would stop. So that's going, it doesn't really catch us up that well. You know, that, that's a massive summary of three hours worth of teaching, but... Uh, Distraction in Mexico. So here's a great quote from Barbara Tuckman about that distraction in Mexico. In America, four-fifths of the regular army was tied up inside or along the borders of Mexico. Four-fifths of the regular army of America. Isn't that amazing? Pershing, so he's the, uh, the general that is over these troops. Pershing's 12,000 troops were still vainly chasing Villa through the hills of Chihuahua. Uh, that's a great summary of many of our lives right there. I'll read it again so that you can sort of uh, reminisce on the days of your life where you've chased Pancho Villa around. 
Uh, Pershing's 12,000 troops were still vainly chasing Via through the hills of Chihuahua. Some, some reason it has a little humor to it. At the same time, it's a very sad statement of the way that many of us have felt our life has gone. Intrigues in Mexico. Introducing Agent H. I don't know if you guys like that type of stuff, but I love uh, that spy type of thing, and so Agent H really intrigues me. We don't know anything about Agent H. We know that Agent H was British. We know that Agent H was a man. And we know that Agent H was stationed in Mexico. And Agent H was eyes of Room 40. Do you guys remember Room 40? I probably should have said previously on Daily Thunder and put Room 40 up there too. Because, in fact, that is a part of this. Room 40 is the spy network of Great Britain. And that's, that's what it's known as. It's the code breakers. And so this is still to this day, if you use the phrase Room 40, the reason they even cho chose the name Room 40 is to not draw attention to itself. Yeah, we just work in Room 40. Yeah, it's just four rooms down from the conference room. Uh, and uh, it sounds very unimpressive, right? And that was supposed to sound very unimpressive. And yet what is going on inside of Room 40 is very impressive. And so Agent H works for Admiral Hull, who is over Room 40. Admiral Hull is an admiral with the Navy. This is naval intelligence. It's interesting that naval intelligence is the premier arm of espionage in, uh, in Great Britain, and which is then in the world. So listen to this little sub-quote, which I will go into the full quote for it, but designated only as H, his identity remains secreted in Room 40's files. I like lines like that. It's very intriguing to me, which is why I had to stick it on the screen. So there's Agent H for you. Uh, and yeah, I'm sorry to give so much away. If you're, what, if you're not seeing this video, via video, I have a picture on the screen of a guy whose face is blacked out, so you can't see him. And that's just part of the intrigue. But Agent H, I'm going to introduce you to a few other characters. Admiral Hall, when I gave the message Room 40, I introduced him. And he is sort of the mind that is going to shape the British espionage system, the secret service, if you will, the, the intelligence system uh, behind it. Woodrow Wilson is the president of the United States at this time, and he's been a fascinating study too. We've sort of uh, dabbled in a little Wilson, Wilsonian uh, thought, but he's a pacifist. And he came into Washington, D.C. and was elected president. He's the first guy that wasn't a politician. He was a scholarly guy, came from the educational system. He's a smart guy, and he believes that America has become filthy in Washington, D.C., and he wants to clean out the swamp. Doesn't that sound eerily familiar? And so we have this guy who comes outside of politics into Washington to clean out Washington. Now, he's doing it completely different than our latest uh, character that has been working on that same project, uh, he came from a, a different angle. He came from more of a liberal bent. And, and yet, if you were to study him, you would probably struggle with the same thing I do, which is, I like the guy. You know, you know I, I like what he's after. He, he stands for good things. And then there's another part of you that's like, I don't know that I like this guy, and I don't feel very secure as a country with him in control. It's, he's an interesting study. And so if you ask me what my opinion is on Woodrow Wilson, it's still... Uh, out for debate. I really don't know. There's parts of things that he did that I would say that's actually a really good thing for our country. And there's other things that I feel like he nearly destroyed us all. 
And so uh, Woodrow Wilson, it's interesting because he's a pacifist. He does not want to fight wars. And yet he is probably going to declare war more than any president in U.S. history. And yet he's probably the only pacifist president we've ever had. So figure that one into the ironic ironies of American history. It's, it's pretty amazing. Kaiser Wilhelm II. So we've been calling him William. Someone proposed to me that they ran into a, a, a Wilhelm uh, overseas and they, he, he went by Willie. And so they were saying that I pretty much could call him Willie if I wanted. And so, you know, I'm pondering that. But Kaiser Wilhelm is the emperor of Germany. Kaiser means Caesar. And so he's basically like a king over Germany. And he's a meddler. If you saw that previous title, uh, the meddling of, well, William the meddler, well, meddling of William. Now I can't remember what it was called. And yet he is involved in all these intrigues. He has his own, he's like the Admiral Hall of Germany. Even though he's the king, he's involved in all these things. So he's the one sponsoring different intrigues. And he is like in the midst of all this stuff that's going down in Mexico and America. He's in the middle of it. I mean, it's uh, this guy. And if, if you study him, I have multiple messages on him in this series. He's one of those guys that you like to have a message on, even though you don't really like him. You know, he's not a very likable guy, but you like to have a message on him because he, they're sort of fun messages uh, because he's an intriguing character. Oh, and then we have Folk Kronholm. And Folk Kronholm is like a, an ambassador from Sweden to Mexico. And you could say, what does that have to do with anything? You just said he was from Sweden? Sweden's a neutral country during World War I. And so what would a Swedish ambassador to Mexico have to do with anything? Well, let's wait and see. Remember, there's Agent H who is watching. Room 40's confusion. So Room 40 is back in London, and in Room 40, ironically, and they're going to burst out of Room 40. They're still going to call themselves Room 40. By the end of the war, they have around 800 code breakers that are working constantly, intercepting messages, because the first thing the British are going to do as their first offensive maneuver of World War I is they're going to cut the transatlantic cables of the Germans. So the Germans have no ability to communicate transatlantically. And so they only have a wireless station near Berlin that can communicate, and Room 40 is picking up every wireless communication. And as I exposed in the last message called Room 40, they have broken the code. And this isn't just a code, it's also an enciphered code. And they figured out the cipher and the code, and so as a result, everything uh, German is saying, Germany is saying, they know what it is. And that is actually going to steer the war. In fact, many people have said that it's, the, it's Room 40 that ended up winning the war uh, for the Allies, which is, again, just part of the fun and the intrigue of the story. But Room 40 is confused at this time. We're late 1916. And there's a lot of communications that they notice that the Germans are getting transatlantically. They're crossing the Atlantic with them, and they can't figure out where, how they're getting across. It's like, whoa, 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 we're not picking that up. What is this? And so how are the Germans communicating across the Atlantic? So they've, they have all the wireless in the, in the European zone covered, and they're, they're figuring it all out. They're listening in. But then there's these communications that are coming across the Atlantic that they're missing. And they know they're missing because, I mean, these guys see everything. They have eyes everywhere. And they know that something's being communicated, but they missed it. It wasn't one of the wireless communications. So, okay, something's going on here. 
So Barbara Tuckman picks up the story. Germany, however, worked out a way to leap over the wireless gap. Her overseas messages to and from the Americas, most of which were channeled through Bernsdorf, who's the ambassador to America from Germany, were getting through in some manner, which until now, Room 40 had been unable to trace. A puzzling dead spot in the air between Washington and Berlin had blocked the efforts to listen in. The interceptors could not discover what route the messages took. Admiral Hall was baffled. This is a quote from Admiral Hall. He's talking to a guy named Captain Gaunt. We have traced nearly every route, he wrote to Captain Gaunt, and I'm really reduced to the following. He sends them down to Buenos Aires and then thence across to Valparaiso. So far, Hall was right, but after Argentina and Chile, the track vanished. From there, I cannot make out where they are sent, he told Gaunt, whether via China or Russia, through the connivance of a neutral legation or not. Now, in the last quarter of 1916, a clue picked up in Mexico. Picked, uh, uh, let me say that again. A clue picked up in Mexico supplied the solution. All right, now remember we have Agent H down there in Mexico, and he has his eyes on a few things, and there's going to be a clue picked up. One of the most noisily pro-German members of the diplomatic corps in Mexico City was the Swedish Charge d'Affaires, I, I don't know how to say that, by the way, Er Folk Kronholm. Remember our Swedish ambassador? Lately, it had been noticed by a certain inquisitive Englishman Air Kronholm had been frequenting the telegraph office more often than the routine and limited relations of Sweden with Mexico would seem to warrant. The Englishman was inquisitive with a purpose, for he was acting as an agent of Admiral Hall, designated only as H. His identity remains secret in, in room 40's files. See, that's where I got that from. You could, just see me. you could just see Eric at this point in the story going, oh, I like this. Had Kronholm been more discreetly neutral, his visits might have gone unremarked, but his admiration for the German cause being notorious, his traffic in telegrams became provocative. Mr. H took note of it, wondered and reported his observations to Admiral Hall with a promise to investigate further. Sometime later, Admiral Hall found himself reading an intercept from Eckhart to Berlin. So Eckhart is going to be another German ambassador, but more to the Balkans. But he's, the, so he's, this communication is going to come from Eckhart to Berlin, asking for a reply to an earlier request for a decoration for his Swedish college, colleague, Er Kronholm. Although the German passion for collecting and bestowing decorations was an understood thing in the Europe of that day, Hall's sensitive antenna twitched on reading Eckhart's request. Why would a Swedish colleague need to be decorated during the war. Sweden's a neutral country. Hmm. So Hall, in, is, Admiral Hall is always like in the middle of everything, and his brain is always chewing on these things. Why should a Swedish charge, I don't know if that's how you say it, in Mexico City want or deserve a German decoration? Admiral Hall did not like unanswered questions. He looked up H's report and reread the mention of Kronholm's unusual frequenting of the telegraph office. Subsequently, H, having with some ingenuity discovered that Kronholm's telegraph bills far exceeded his government allowance for that purpose, had suggested a disquieting explanation. Was it possible that Sweden, granted that she was admittedly pro-German, could have so far violated her official neutrality as to be secretly sending Germany's messages for her? So far, this was only suspicion, but now circumstantial evidence turned up to confirm it. 
Now, I'm cutting out loads of the story. Is, I know, sorry to do that to you guys. But yes, Sweden, it's called the Swedish Roundabout. And so obviously that's not going to go over very well with the allies that a neutral country is participating in dealing with the German crisis of transatlantic communication. And so as a result, the Swedish, or uh, our Kronholm character, is going to be exposed thanks to H. Do you guys remember H? Yeah, I'm always intrigued by H too. <clears throat> Anytime you give someone a name that is just one letter, it's very intriguing. The Christian spy network. Oh, whoa, we have a Christian spy network? Yeah, of course we do. You didn't know that? There's, there's a reason why. You see, Christianity has an intelligence service too, and we need to have the eyes of H on everything we're doing as well. We just don't call it Agent H. We have a code name D. Now, it's funny because I actually call Leslie D. I called Hudson. I don't do it anymore, but Hudson was B and Harper was P. Uh, and so I, I get into this, you know, this spy network thing too, even though that isn't the reason I, I have single letter names for them. I was driving down the road with Leslie once and we heard about some author uh, that was going to be at some book gathering that we were going to be at named D. Henderson. And I said something like, uh, imagine just having the name D. Uh, and I said, what if I started calling you D? And then she was all quiet over there, so I started calling her D. And that was a long time ago, right? So she still is D to this day. Uh, and, but it's just the letter D. It's not D-E-E. -E, it's just the letter D. And then Hudson, when we didn't know, uh, you know what his name was, we didn't want to give him a name. We knew he was a boy, so it became B. And so he's B. And he was then B for most of his young life. And then P, uh, she was you know, sweet P. And so it's a P, just a letter P uh, is, is what that is. And so... And then I stopped my tradition, you know, so if you said, what's Kip? Yeah, he's, he's, he's dub. Uh, you know, it's like it, my, 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 my tactic changed. But we have a code name D, Secret Agent D, and you see it up on the screen. His real name is Discernment. You see, we actually have a spy network. We have the ability to have the eyes of H on everything that's going on in our life to be able to pick up and to discern that which is right and that which is wrong, that which is true, that which is false, that which is light, that which is dark, that which is life, that which is death. We are actually called to discern between these. And so in a strange way, even though many of you haven't looked at it as an intelligence service in the Christian life, we have that. Or maybe I should say it this way, we are supposed to have that. And But we have in Christianity, modern Christianity, fallen into a certain state of disrepair, where yes, historically, we've had this great intelligence service, but in modern times, most Christians don't know the Word of God, and they are illiterate when it comes to the, the Word of God, and they don't have discernment cultivated in their life because of that. When you have an absence of truth in your life, then you don't have anything to reason from. It's like not having H on the ground in Mexico. So you could mean well and say, hey, we want to stop this war, we want to end this war, but actually the intelligence development of your life matters in being able to discern and to be able to intervene. And like I said, Room 40, to many people, could be credited with winning this war. And so there is something about the discernment and the mind that God designed us to have that is actually critical in achieving the victory that we are called to achieve. So the battle over the thought life. I'm going to introduce to you two different minds. 
Now, we know uh, in Scripture that the word mind is used. We have, as, as believers, the mind of Christ. And Paul uses the statement, I want you to have this mind in you, the, the same mind that was in Christ. Now, depending on your translation of that, that could also be attitude and that could also be uh, perspective. Uh, but the mind that was in Christ, the phreneo, the attitude, the outlook, the perspective that Christ had. And so there is something, and we know, I mean, all you have to do is live in a human body to know that there's something going on up here. You know, I have thoughts, I'm engaging with things. And many of us are taken advantage of because of our lack of guardedness over our thought life. And so our thought life oftentimes can go rogue on us, but if a thought life goes rogue, it takes the whole body with it. You see, the body is actually meant to be controlled by the head. And so if the head is controlled by fleshly thoughts and self-centered ideas, then ironically, the whole body falls into alignment with that. But do a flip on that and say, what if the mind is actually in agreement with the kingdom pattern? Then what if the mind is submitted to God and controlled by the word of God and agrees with faith in that word and believes in the power of God to overcome? What happens to the body? Well, what happens to the body is it now behaves and acts in accordance with that head. And so as a result, that becomes very, very important for each of us in our unique battles that we're going to fight. So let me introduce the two different minds. First of all, we can say it the mind of Adam. You know how we always divide things up into twos. So the first mind is the mind that all of us start with. There's something off in us. You see, we are born of the lineage of Adam. All of us are a descendant of Adam. And we sort of share in his uh, disrepair, his state of failure. And so as a result, there's something off inside of us. We have a throne inside of us, and instead of Christ sitting on that throne, which he built for himself, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we are seated in it. And it has distorted our entire existence, which starts with our perspective, our outlook, our thoughts. And so the mind of Adam operates, operates off of what I'm going to call human fuel. It doesn't have spiritual fuel. It doesn't have truth. So it has to operate off of that which it has down here. And I'm, you know, just a short list, feelings, longings, native instincts. There's different things that are not all wrong. For instance, the fact that you could have a native compassion in you when you see a, a frog get stepped on. You're like, oh, and you feel for it. You see, that's a native instinct, and it's a shadow of the way God created you. You see, even though you are distorted, there are still shadow dimensions of the way that you were originally designed. So it's not all just evil through and through. However, if you continue to cultivate that self and that flesh, it starts to throw off even that native instinct towards good behaviors or towards liking others, and it begins to be more and more self-gnarled And so you'll see that it says at the very end, the mind of Adam operates off of human fuel, feelings, longings, native instincts, and it always loses. It's going to lose every battle it enters into. You see, it is not designed to win the way it is. It it almost has to lose just to prove that it's insufficient. And so the mind of Adam cannot win the battle. So the mind of Adam could esteem, for instance, that, all right, I want to live upright, and I want to be pure, and I want to be noble, and I want to have every thought in my head be something that is, uh, 
it could be looked in by the outside world and they would esteem it as that's an, an amazing selfless thought. The mind of Adam doesn't have the capacity to pull that off. It doesn't have the ability to do it. Even if it esteemed it, it couldn't do it. And oftentimes the mind of Adam doesn't even esteem that. And yet there's a different mind, and that's the transition in the kingdoms. When you believe in Christ, you transition into the kingdom of heaven. You transition from Adam into Christ. And now your descendancy in Adam is nullified, and you are now of a new order, if you will. You are now of Christ's lineage. You have transferred from the kingdom of darkness into a different kingdom. And as a result, there's a dimension of your being that has been there the entire time. It's a spiritual dimension of your being, but it's almost like it's been hollowed out or vacated. It's, you know, I always picture the Holy of Holies, and it's covered in uh, cobwebs, and it's empty. Because the presence of God was removed when sin entered into Adam. But that dimension, which was meant to house the living God, actually comes to life. And it looks like you. That's the way I always like to describe it. It looks like you. You know, similar nose, similar hand structure, similar feet structure, but you can't see it. It's a spirit man. And that is what the Spirit of God inhabits. And it actually has eyes, but they're spiritual eyes. So you can see what God sees in this world. Have you ever had it where you can see someone and you know something about them and you care about them? You see, when you, when you didn't know Christ, you could see that person and not care at all. But now you see them and suddenly your heart is touched because now you have a new heart too. And it beats with his burdens. You have ears that are spiritual and can hear what God is saying. It's like, whoa, God? And yet it's not an audible voice. It's just that God can communicate with you in a way that is very real, even though it's hard to describe to someone that doesn't hear God. And you have eyes to see, mouth to speak. You have a mind, a new mind, but it's the mind of Christ. And this mind is actually gifted to actually be renewed. And you know, so this old mind, which is still there, which has so much junk in it, can actually be renewed by this overlaying of Christ's mind. So the mind of Christ operates off of grace and is built to win. So the mind of Adam always loses. The mind of Christ is built to win. Now you notice how I didn't say it always wins <laughs> because that depends on if you use it. In other words, you could have something, you could have this incredible intelligence network and not listen to it. You know, H could say, hey, I was watching Cronholm today and I noticed this. And Admiral Hall could say, who cares? And that's the way we can be too. The word of God can speak to us and, and actually give us truth and we can brush it off. In other words, we've been given the mind of Christ which is designed to win. But we need to still every day pick up our cross and follow him. We need to die daily. We need to not go back to our old mind, but we need to continue to cultivate this new mind, this mind of Christ. Philippians 4, 8 through 9 talks about this mind and how we are to use this mind. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Now, if you try and do this with the mind of Adam, you will fall flat on your face. You can't do this. And yet many of us have tried in our own efforts, our own Adamness, to actually live the way that Paul is describing in Philippians here. And yet 
you have the capacity in Christ to do this, but sometimes you try and do it just in your own human effort as opposed to recognizing, okay, this is a work that God does. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5 talks about this same mind. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You see, this notion is that we have authority over thoughts that are wanting to come in, that we are supposed to think on these things, which would also infer don't think on these things, and that we have power, weaponry, that is able to throw down thoughts that would try and get in that don't belong, and that we could actually take them captive. They have no ability to function inside of our mind. That does not mean they won't knock. That does not mean the Germans stop scheming just because H shows up. It's that H is there to discern it so that he can shut it down, and it can't impact the behavior of the allies to fight the wrong battles. Misinformation, have you ever heard of misinformation or disinformation? Is a tactic of the enemy. It's one of the number one tactics that the devil uses in our life. It's partially true data, but distorted. I mean, if you hear about the, the disinformation and the misinformation in World War I, it's, I mean, you just laugh out. It's out loud. It's hilarious. And, you know, the, the Russians were, right before the Battle of the Marne, there was this whole leak of information that even the German spy believed in London at the time, and he starts passing it back to, uh, to Germany, saying there are tens of thousands of Russians that are actually going to cross the, uh, the English Channel and attack, uh, and their boots are covered with snow, is, is what the, the rumor was. And the Russians are hardly even standing there in their, on, on their own in their battle with the Germans on the Eastern Front, let alone being able to make it all the way over to London somehow with snow still on their boots and be able to cross uh, the British Channel or the English Channel. I mean, this is a total ridiculous thing, and yet the Germans had to figure it in to their planning. The same thing can happen to us all the time. So here's a breakdown of the mind of Adam. So remember I said there's two minds. You have the mind of Adam and you have the mind of Christ. So this mind is broken up into three sectors. We'll call it suggested thoughts, consciousness. Consciousness would be the, the concept of what you're thinking about right now. And then your mind, the mind which I'm going to go into by giving it different names. So I'm going to switch out the names to suggestions. This is what sort of knocks and says, hey, I'd like you to think about this. And then the active thoughts, this is what you're currently turning over in your mind. Hopefully what we're talking about right now is what you're currently turning over in your mind, right? And then your storehouse, this is what you believe. This is your understanding, this is your knowledge base. Like the ABCs are tucked in here, okay? It's in the storehouse. But your belief system is tucked in here. This is where the Word of God, when you study it, it stores up in here. You put it in your filing cabinets or on your shelves. I call it a pantry, a storehouse. It's like a uh, military pantry. You have all of your equipment here, and it's being used. This is like a Room 40. This is the intelligence network. This is where you draw from, like when Admiral Hall sees that telegram from Eckhart about an award or a, a, a medal for Kronholm. He says, hmm, and then he starts digging around in the pantry, and he, he finds H's uh, review of Kronholm's behavior in Mexico. He's like, uh-huh, and ties them together. That's what's going on here, okay? 
So now, the mind of Adam isn't white and pure, and that's one of the problems with it, is when a black suggestion comes, the active thoughts immediately can darken from it because they have no defense against it, which I'll explain in just a second, which then causes that same poison to enter into the storehouse dimension. And so your belief system, your conclusions have a tendency to be off. (laughs) And so when you see the world in which we live, there should be a certain degree of compassion for recognizing that the mind of Adam just functions like the mind of Adam. (laughs) It, It shouldn't surprise us that people that do not know Christ do not think like Christ. That shouldn't surprise us. We've had a country that we've lived in that was founded on a biblical premise or a Judeo-Christian worldview. But that Judeo-Christian worldview has been wiped away. It's been eradicated, which, yeah, I, I don't blame you for being a little disturbed by that. But if it's not there and we have a generation being raised in this territory, does it make sense that if they don't know Christ, they wouldn't come to the conclusions that Christ would have them come to? There is one solution for that, is that, and that is to bring them to Christ and bring them back to the mind of Christ, which is the Word of God. So I have an arrow on the screen that shows, you know, that we have, for those of you that are getting this via podcast, I have three boxes on the screen. It says the mind of Adam. And on the far right, you have suggestions. And then the next box over is active thoughts. And then storehouse is on the far left. And I have an arrow between suggestions and active thoughts which is showing something, that is there's something that's supposed to be there. God designed something to be there. But when we forsook the presence of God, we lost the right working of the mind. And so now it's just sort of become the territory of the devil. He just sort of you know, rules over it. But there was supposed to be a door there. There's supposed to be like a vault type of door there. It's like not just anything comes into the active thoughts. And so there will be a lot of thoughts that come that present themselves and knock, but they're supposed to knock. They're supposed to present themselves. They're supposed to show their ID. And yet many of us have never even heard of a door there. And so still, even though we're Christians, we still can function with the mind of Adam because we've never actually realized, hey, we need to stick this door there. There's supposed to be a barrier between me and the thoughts that are coming into my brain. So I also have a box that came off the storehouse, which is on the far left-hand side, and I'm going to call that the kennel. Okay, it's a kennel, and we've all been given a little puppy, and it's a sniffer dog. And it's like one of those high-end sniffer dogs, you know, like a, what, a German shepherd is a sniffer dog, right? A bloodhound would be a sniffer dog. And they can just pick up scents and particles of things, and they go, like, and they, they growl at it, right? And they're supposed to be trained, though. And so many, all of us have a sniffer dog, and yet if we look at the mind of Adam, there's no dog in there being trained. You see, it's empty, therefore discernment is off, because that dog is actually your discernment. You see, that dog is supposed to grow up in the storehouse, if you will, understanding and learning what is right and what is wrong, what is true, what is false, what is light, what is dark, what is life, what is death. And that dog then is going to be your sniffer dog for every thought that comes and presents itself at that door. However, if you're not growing up the sniffer dog and training the sniffer dog in that kennel, then it's not going to be prepared to supply what you need to win this battle. And so if you were to translate this into World War I terminology, this storehouse is like room 40. 
And it's the intelligence network, and it's training up spies <laughs> to watch for that which would help Great Britain discern how Great Britain can win this war. All right, It's a very self-centered uh, version of what God intended us to be, which is Christians, not Room 40, by the way, just to separate out the two. <clears throat> but you see that there's a big X in the kennel. It's like, oh, no, we're missing our sniffer dog. So when a suggestion, that's a dark suggestion too, by the way, it's a black box. So when that suggestion approaches the active thoughts, what does the active thoughts do? It just takes it in. And that's the way many of us have, have functioned. It's like something flashes up in front of us and we're like, oh, I have no choice but to take it in and process it. Some lie is set before us that your sniffer dog should be snarling at and you just take it in and start pondering it. It's like, whoa, 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 we need to change this. But this is how the mind of Adam works. So not do the, only the active thoughts bring it in, but now it goes straight into the storehouse, which continues to hinder your kennel from being able to cultivate and grow up the sniffer dog. So as a result, you are unable to stop this process. There's only one way to intervene in this process, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. So the mind of Christ functions differently. So we still have a dark suggestion over there. And by the way, for those of you that are getting this via podcast, I still have the three boxes, but this is the mind of Christ. Now the boxes, instead of being black, are white, except for the suggestion box is still black, which means the black suggestions are still there. They don't disappear because we come to Christ. You ever notice that one? Some of us think that once we come to Christ, it's like all the black suggestions should disappear. It's like, why are they still trying to get in? Well, they're still wondering if you actually put on the door. And they are still going to ply you with whatever technique they can to see if they can uh, break you down. And they do not want you cultivating a sniffer dog, by the way. And so I, I have that same arrow between suggestions and active thoughts, which is showing where the door is supposed to go. Now watch this. I'm going to stick a door on the active thoughts. You guys are going to be very impressed with this door. Boom. Is, I mean, try getting through that, okay? That is one impressive purple door. Uh, and so I made it purple. If you said why, I, I'm not exactly sure, but it's royal. You know, it's a royal door, right? And that is supposed to be there, just like uh, the curtain uh, in the temple of God. It's like, it's thick. And we you don't just go in. Not just anything tra traverses through that. And so as a result, it's meant as a passageway, and it actually is supposed to bring things in. Do you know that there's a lot of good suggestions, not just black suggestions, that come into our life? The Word of God, when you're reading it, I would encourage you to open up the door, right? And the, the church of Jesus Christ can give edification, give words of encouragement, give, give words of exhortation. And you want to test those words, but what do you test them against? You're supposed to test them against the Word of God. Well, how do you do that? And that's why it's important that you begin to allow the Word of God into your active thoughts, and then you begin to stash it on the pantry shelves, and you begin to cultivate this life of truth in you. It's called a renewing of the mind. That mind, that storehouse, needs to be set straight because you've got a lot of junk in there. And so as a result, as you begin to put in the truth, it begins to change over your storehouse. And look at this. Boom! You have yourself a kennel again, and it's living. And guess who's being cultivated in there? Your little sniffer dog, right? Oh, big sniffer dog. And his name is Agent D. That's for discernment. You see, this is your discernment, and it's being cultivated because you're blocking off just every thought, and you're bringing in the thoughts that actually build up truth in your life. That is establishing your sniffer system. Your thought life actually is meant to be guarded. 
It's not meant to just be open territory. So Agent D, discernment, is actually called to watch this door. And so you cultivate him in that storehouse with the truth, and then he is going to now guard the active thoughts. So it's like, hey, Agent D, go get him. And he's like, or he wags his tail, like this is a good thought. And that's what Paul actually encourages us to do. You know, those at Berea were more noble than those at Thessalonica. Why? Because they tested everything Paul spoke against the word of truth. That's what made them more noble. In other words, you are supposed to be more noble than those at Thessalonica too. Because you also are testing it against something. And discernment is, in a sense, the mobile text of Scripture that is coming and sniffing things. And the more Scripture you know, the bigger your dog gets. And the better his sniffing quality becomes. And so as a result, you become a formidable challenge to the enemy to get that dark suggestion in. However, some of us have just a little pipsqueak Agent D right now that needs to grow up. At the same time, Agent D, even if it's small, is still helpful. And so just continue to feed it with the truth, and you're going to find that you'll get sharper in your discernment with every passing day. The Christian Spy Network, code name D, real name Discernment. Doesn't that just sound? That sounds like sort of a cheesy Christian version of a spy, uh, you know, drama of some kind. Could you imagine? It's like the Christian. It's called the Christian Spy Network, code name D, real name Discernment. And it's like this guy strolls in. Uh, it's, it sounds really good. Uh, so I'm going to go to World War One now, and we're going to look at Allied intelligence. Okay, now. I I am a fan of the Allies. I am German, okay? So you'd think that I would just be cheering on Germany. However, I just can't do that in World War I or in World War II because they're the aggressor and their motive is something I can't support, right? And not that I think the Allies are without flaw in this. Just to be honest, it's really hard to pick a side in World War I. World War II is a little cleaner and it's a little easier to side against Hitler and to side with Churchill. That's, that's, you feel really good when you do that. However, World War I doesn't have as clear of a line, but it's clear enough for me to be able to say, look, we're building up allied intelligence, we're trying to stock up room 40, we're catching wireless uh, communications, and we're interpreting, We've got, we have the cipher and the code figured out, and that's what we went through. When we went through uh, room 40, we were talking about the fact that the Word of God helps us decode the cipher and the code. We have everything we need to know exactly what the devil's doing. We don't even need to study what the devil's doing. We know what he's doing. And so the word of God exposes his antics. But that isn't our focus. Our focus is on what God is doing. He gives us not just the exposing of the enemy's tactics, but he gives us our offensive maneuvers. He shows us what to do to win the war. So our code book, or our red book is what I called it, uh, is... The, the Word of God, is actually our secret. And when we know that, we become really good in our intelligence side of Christianity. So what you're going to see on the screen here, it says Allied Intelligence. I have the same uh, three blocks. You guys noticing that something's like going back and forth in room 40? You see that kennel? It had something pop up on it. Did you guys not see that? Or is that just me? All right, so we have three blocks, and we have German schemes, instead of suggestions. The Germans have misinformation, disinformation, and they have schemes. I mean, it, I almost just did a session just on schemes of the Germans, just because I think you'd find it 
humorous. I don't think anyone back in that time found it humorous. Uh, what was like the great fennel plot? Uh, fennel is part of like aspirin, and the big leading uh, aspirin maker in America was Bayer, which is a German company. And so the Germans were working with Bayer to hinder that fennel from getting to the American military production because it's what they use in bombs. And so it was like called the great fennel plot. And we had, uh, what was it? Uh, I can't remember. It was, it was 20 million tons, I think it was, of military armament that was going to be sent over to support the allies that the Germans blew up in America. And no one knows who did it, right? It's all like, oh, that's strange. It just blew up. And uh, I think it was called the Black Tom Project or something like that. And, I mean, all these intriguing things. They, they blew up a railway line. Anything that would help service the allies, the Germans... We're over in America, like blowing things up and doing this. It's very interesting. It's like the spy, the espionage side of what the Germans were doing. The Americans weren't even involved in the war. However, they were supplying arms to the Allies. And so, as far as Germany is considered, they, we don't want them in the war. We don't want their soldiers in the war, but we also don't want them getting military uh, armaments over there. So, the Germans have schemes. However, the Allied military actions, in other words, what they do, their behavior, where they choose to hit, where they choose to defend, they need intelligence for this. They need to know how to handle their actions. They need to know how to handle what we would call our active thought lives. Thought lives. It's their active deployment. Where are they going? Where are they spending their energies? Well, their secret is Room 40. And so they need to cultivate Room 40 and build Agent H or Agent H's. In other words, their eyes all around to discern. They're catching the wireless communications. It's the code breakers. It's those that are discerning. And then those code breakers are actually going to meet the German schemes right when they come out and say, that's false, or this is what they really mean by that. This is a back-channel communication that they had over here. Really, their plan is over here. And as a result, it's strengthening the allies to actually win this war. And the Allies are going to win this war again, arguably, because of the strength of Room 40, the British spy network, and because of how they trained their sniffer dogs. Because agent, I mean, I'm sorry, Room 40 is just a room. What they need is they need the workers that are actually able to discern and to gather in this information to then explode the German schemes and expose them for what they are. November 1916. Keep that allied sniffer dog sniffing. We are right in a crucial time of the war. Now, every time I go back into this, like I have the meddling of William, 20-gun salute, 21-gun salute, uh, the rise of Poncho, Room 40, and then this one. It's all for a reason. In other words, I'm building this case of both Room 40 and the spy network and America and Mexico and their relations and it's ultimately coming to this transatlantic communication that is being exposed in this, that we just found the Swedish roundabout. That discovery of the Swedish roundabout is actually then going to give Room 40 now access to everything that is happening transatlantically. So they're going to tap in to the diplomatic channel of America, illegally, they're not supposed to do that, but their Room 40 is gonna do that, and they're gonna pick up a communication. And this is the communication that they've been waiting for. And it's called the Zimmerman Telegram. Now, I haven't taught you on that, but that's why I'm building this. You have to know all these other pieces to truly appreciate 
room 40 and what they're going to do in the crucial moment, which is right in the beginning of 1917. Everything is going to fall to pieces, if you want to say it that way, in 1917. Everything weird happens at the beginning of 1917. Up to this point, we just have trench warfare. We have a lot of people dying. It's a disaster. And then suddenly, all the intrigue goes and just explodes on the scene. We need to be ready for that, guys. Okay? That's, I mean, we're coming to the end of our series. We're episode 33. We only go to 42. That means we have a lot that's just about to happen, but it's some fun stuff. So keep that allied sniffer dog sniffing, guys. It's not the time to take a break. It was now November 1916. This is Barbara Tuckman. Deadlock and discouragement hung in the air as thick as a coal smoke fog. Half of humanity was starving or sickening or dying in the trenches. Isn't that an amazing statement? What a summary of what has happened in the first two years. Half of humanity was starving or sickening or dying in the trenches. Germany has no food. So they have, they literally, have, all the, the naval blockades have hindered any food from being able to come in. And any food they do have is going to the front lines to keep these men fed. So the people at home are starving. I mean, this is like a disaster situation. So it says half of humanity. This is not just affecting Germany. This is affecting the world. And the world is, you know, half of humanity was starving or sickening or dying in the trenches. Almost as many people will die from sickness in World War I than as die in battle. Isn't that an amazing statement? In fact, it could be more died from sickness because they don't have the normal means of helping and because you have rampant disease spreading because of the circumstances. The military party knew well, had known since 1915, that Germany could not win the war on land. Therefore, the only chance for victory lay in Germany's last weapon, the U-boat. But to be effective, it must be used without restrictions to the limit of its sinister capacity. Then while the land war was kept going to drain the Allies' strength, the U-boat would finish them off by strangulation under the sea. So I'm setting you up for the beginnings of 1917. The Germans have to make a choice. They can't win this thing. And it's killing them. Their people are starving. They have to do something to break this. They could try and enter into a peace agreement, but they don't want to do that. They want to act like they're doing that, and that's how they're going to start out 1917. They're going to act like they're looking for peace. Meanwhile, they're prepping to do something called unrestricted U-boat warfare. What that means is there's a rule from the Hague Convention, and I've already stated this in a previous message, that states if you're going to attack, if a U-boat is going to attack a ship, it has to first come to the surface and announce it. And the Germans are like, this is ridiculous. Then they shoot you. And what's the good of having a U-boat if it's not hidden? And you have to admit, if you're a German, you're going to be upset about that. However, the Americans, remember Woodrow Wilson, the pacifist, has said that if they open up U-boat warfare again, like they did back early and they sunk a big ship called the Lusitania, if they do that again, America is going to declare war. Well, it's a big deal for Woodrow Wilson to say that because he doesn't want to say that. In fact, the Germans are wondering if he really means it. And so they're actually deciding right now, do they want to do this? Because that's the way they'll shut down all British shipping. They can destroy all British ships, which means all of their arms that are coming over from America, shut down. They can starve out that island called Great Britain. They could win this war, but they have to use their U-boats. But if they use the U-boats, America may awaken from its slumber, which is what they're laboring so long and hard to keep from happening. 
Uh, can you see the tension? If you're the German, what do you do? But they're desperate. All right, so I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen. I'm just going to hint at it. The key character steps into the storyline. German war minister Arthur Zimmerman. So I don't know if you've noticed the name of the book that I've had on the screen by Barbara Tuckman. It's called The Zimmerman Telegram. If you know World War I territory, you've probably heard of The Zimmerman Telegram because it's, it's sort of the uh, line of demarcation. It is the change point in World War I. There is a telegram that is going to be sent along the Swedish roundabout that Room 40 is going to pick up. Room 40 is going to illegally pick it up because they are tapping into the American diplomatic channel, which they are not allowed to look into. However, they're going to have something that will make a lot of difference for the Americans. But how do they share it with the Americans? Don't you like that? It's called the Zimmerman Telegram. So Arthur Zimmerman is going to come into a new position. It's called the War Minister. So it's a huge position in Germany. And he's going to step onto the stage in late uh, 1916. And there's a picture of him. And this guy is going to play a big role in the history that we all live in right now. The last 100 years have been defined by so much that is taking place right here. I'm going to finish with this. Zimmerman was a big, ruddy, good-humored, square-headed bachelor of 50 years with blue eyes, reddish blonde hair, and bushy mustache. Of course, he has to have a bushy mustache. Everyone in this time had a bushy mustache. So the intrigue is there, but the application is what we want. We want to actually develop our sniffer dog. We want to cultivate that discernment in our life, but we also, for some of us, it might be the first time we're hearing about that door, that door that needs to be up on our active thoughts, that doesn't just get bowled over by any thought, but actually is willing to test and approve that which is desiring to come in. When Paul says, think on these things, he's telling you what to approve. However, are we going to listen? And it is a game changer. You will win battles in your life when you start controlling your thought life by the grace of God. Father, we love you, and we are expectant to see what you will do with the truth in our life. Lord, we desire to see that truth not just work in us, but work in the church today. And not just in the church today, but in our society. I pray, Lord Jesus, for revival. I pray that you would awaken uh, this sleeping culture that we're in. And Lord Jesus, that you would bring your word to bear, your gospel to bear upon it. And Lord Jesus, that we would see a mighty shift. Lord, we ask for this. It seems impossible right now. It seems like the trajectory and the momentum is going in a very opposite way. But Lord, you are the God of the impossible. And so we look to you, O God of the impossible, and we ask for you to intervene and to show the strength of your mighty right hand. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.